I think that that underlies so much of well everything in our society, and I think particularly if you're if you're looking at poverty and financial insecurity, but poverty in particular. Any of the challenges that we're dealing with right now are, if not fully caused by, at least made worse by people living in poverty. And so, when you're talking about health, when you're talking about crime, when you're talking about even environmental、uh, stuff, that if you have a population that is financially secure and empowered, those things become much, much easier to solve. Welcome to the Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us. Where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Income inequality is becoming larger and larger in society. That's something today's founder Jim Pui is working to solve. He's the co-founder of Universal Income Project, a fiscally sponsored organization that's working on rallying support for UBI. He's also the founder and CEO of Share Progress, a social good startup that helps progressive startups leverage data and technology. And prior to that, he served as the director of analytics and development for President Obama's initiative, Organizing for America, and the Democratic National Committee. Later, going on to be the founding CTO of Rebuild the Dream. Jim lectures frequently on the topics of UBI and income inequality and where we're headed. In this episode, we'll discuss why we need UBI. Even before there are robots, the true impact of giving people free money, how we could pay for a universal basic income, and the possible problems behind it, why America's two-party system is fundamentally flawed, how we have to rethink immigration, especially if, if we start UBI, and why Trump may have broke and just fixed politics in the U.S. This one goes all over the windmill because politics and economics they kind of tie together. I know you guys will enjoy this one. So without further ado, I give you Jim Pui. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the states. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk. All at up to fifty percent off, delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus twenty five percent off their first order, up to twenty bucks when you use our link disruptors.fm/thrive. Check it out; they've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up; I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm/thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks, and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatics Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatics proprietary blend—it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor—it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm/fs, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Again, that's disruptors.fm/fs. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy All Star, he loves it as well, and it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So, universal basic income—why did that become so important to you? So, a couple of reasons, honestly. I've Spent most of the last ten years working in the political space to some degree. I worked on the first Obama presidential campaign. Spent a couple of years out in D.C. After that, working for him out there, and have been engaged to some degree ever since. But I would say four, four or five years back now, I started feeling concerned that when we were talking about what are the right economic solutions for the country, they tended to be pretty backwards looking, thinking about. 
the traditional model. It's the you would when you're growing up, you get an education, you find a job, you work in the same company for years, if not decades, and just count on that sort of stability as as the way of providing you with your financial resources, with the benefits you need, and so on. And you don't have to imagine what the future will look like to know that that's no longer the case. We already have a situation where jobs have become much more fluid and dynamic. And there's a lot of pluses to that. It gives people, I think, a lot more freedom to figure out what they want. But the flip side is that we've lost a lot of that stability that formerly would come from from that long relationship between employer and employee. And so when thinking about what is the right way to actually support people in the systems that we have, thinking about something that that is outside the context of work. And so I had, I don't even remember where I first heard about the idea of, of UBI. But my when I first heard about it, my initial reaction is like, I don't know what I think about this. This seems weird to be able to just give people enough money to be able to survive. But then the more I read about it, the more I thought about it, the more I saw the evidence of is has been out there that this is actually a, can be a really effective, powerful program, the more it made sense to me. And so, yeah, about four years back, decided, you know, there's not enough conversation around this. I think I'm going to try to do some writing to start some conversations here and just see where things go. And that led to the formation with myself and a few other people of the Universal Income Project. And so have been continuing to do advocacy and policy work on universal basic income ever since then. So your background, you were with Obama and you were helping him rebuild the dream, so to speak. What was that like? So that was that was the nonprofit organization that I had helped to start. I'd helped to start after my time in D.C. Uh, it was with uh, someone I'd worked with in D.C., Natalie Foster, who ran the digital department uh, for President Obama's uh, Organizing for America. And so uh, her and then also Van Jones, who, who's done a lot of political work um, as well. And so the idea there was generally to try to, to push a bolder progressive economic agenda. We weren't actually talking about UBI at that point, but I think all of us recognized that generally the politics around the economy was was pretty conservative, small c conservative, in that it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't thinking big enough. And so the old that organization was to try to foster a broader movement to, to push for for bigger ideas in that space. How do you do that? And so there there's business, there's public, and then there's the the nonprofit space. How do you move something as colossal as a country? I mean, it's there's yeah, there's different ways of doing it. We would talk about inside game versus outside game. Inside game is you try to work with the people who are already in positions of power. So elected officials, highly regarded and established community or nonprofit leaders, get them on board with different ideas and then work through the traditional political channels to make that happen. So that's one one mechanism. The other is outside game, which is relying on people power. And so that's it's much more like the Bernie Sanders or or you could say first Obama presidential campaign model, which is if you can actually get enough people out there demanding change, then it, it becomes hard to ignore and, and you can actually see our systems respond. And so depending on, on what you're talking about, one, the other or both of those methods together can potentially be effective at actually getting getting change through. But it really depends on what you're asking for. It really depends on the moment. I think where we're at right now as a country, the, the inside game approach for anything substantial seems like pretty much a non-starter uh, just because of, of the inability to, to get anything done at the federal level. And so I, I think in this moment that that outside game approach, really getting people educated and then hopefully galvanized around, around the big ideas they're fighting for is a powerful way to go. It seems a little counterintuitive that government's supposed to be helpful and kind of is hindering everything. That's a little bit of what I'm hearing. It's kind of like the extra heavy thing on the top that's toppling and ineffective. I don't, I mean, I would say certainly in this moment, I don't think that that's necessarily or, or it's e even always been true. I think that unfortunately, over the last 20, 25 years, we've moved to a place where, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I, I am... My background is is partisan, and I'm partisan, but I, I would say that say it, go for the, it. We're, we're, we're not afraid of politics. All right, the Republican Party. I mean, their their tactic for decades now has been obstruction. That they've they've basically they've had a goal of making government less effective, and then running on government being less effective. 
And so I think that uh, a bipartisan system only works if you can have a reasonable degree of cooperation. And when you have one party that it's, it's, they've decided it's in their interest to not have things happen, it means it takes a monumental amount of effort to actually be able to do anything. And so I think that that is the moment that we're in. Um, and so as long as that's the case, I think that, and as, as long as Republicans control, uh, I mean, any of the arms of government, I'm not sure that's, that's about to change. And so, so in that situation, yes, we, I think we have to look to, to other places to be able to, to push through substantial change. Is that a flaw or is that a design? Is that essentially, is that something that's inevitable? So when you talk about buy, it means there's two parties, which means it's kind of like two teams, which means it's kind of like a sport. Is I mean, that the problem? Because most places don't have that bipartisan system. Yeah. They have something that works much better. Yeah. I, I would say yes, generally, if we had a more something like a parliamentary system that did allow for the existence of, of third parties and fourth parties and fifth parties potentially, which could then work in coalition to be able to, to create a majority. I think potentially that, that could put us in a much better spot because basically we've been forced to I mean, there's there's more than two different camps of people in this country, and we've been forced to make these odd alliances to form the parties that exist today. And so there's there's nothing inherent saying that a party supporting big business needs to be the party that supports evangelical beliefs or now white nationalism, but that it's where we're at because that is basically what what got pulled together to, to form the, the modern Republican Party. So I think that, uh, yeah, were our, were our rules to be different, we might be in a, in a different situation. Um, Can we change it if the people that on top are incentivized to keep it that way? Because that's what got them there? It's really tough. I mean, that's where you need massive, massive outside pressure to be able to make something like that happen. And that's, I mean, there's plenty of precedent for this, both in the US and around the world, that if the people of a, a country feel strongly enough that they're not being represented. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it is the country is people. And so I think like what you're seeing right now in Hong Kong, is an example of, of what it can look like when when a population really decides that no, we're not going to accept the, the screwed up system that, that we're in. And so what that looks like, I think it's hard to say, can you do it without violence, I think is is, is a big open question. But I think that uh any one person with the current system, no, you're not going to be able to do much of anything. If we had millions of people working together to make something happen, then we could. And that's what you're trying to do. Why did you choose the economy specifically? I think that that underlies so much of, well, everything in our society. And I think particularly if you're, if you're looking at poverty and financial insecurity, but poverty in particular, any of the challenges that we're dealing with right now are, if not fully caused by, at least made worse by people living in poverty. And so when you're talking about health, when you're talking about crime, when you're talking about even environmental uh, stuff, that if you have a population that is financially secure and empowered, those things become much, much easier to solve. And so I think that there is, uh, I, I mean, once you get to that level, it is, it's systemic. It's, and there is, there is that in interconnectedness. Um, between those challenges. And I think the economics are, are really at the center of that. And so it's not, and this, this is something I tell to a lot of people that something like UBI is not going to solve every problem, but it can make just about every problem easier to solve if you can actually create that, that foundation, that, that economic floor for everyone. Your IQ is like 10 points lower when you're worried about running out of money yeah. because you, you got to hustle. When your back's against the wall, you just start shooting. Would you take, if you could choose between these two, which would you choose? A UBI or universal healthcare? I, and that's not to say that's not to say you should have to choose. A real nation in the first world should be able to do both. But yeah. let's say you had to choose. I so I, I really think it's not only that we should do both. I think that those are those complement each other so well because UBI doesn't. If it's a UBI without universal healthcare, you still have the problem of outrageous medical costs and people going bankrupt because they can't pay their medical bills. So you haven't really solved the problem. If you have True universal healthcare without UBI, it, I mean, it means we're going to be a much healthier population, but you'll still have that financial precarity, which is going to like drive up mental health issues, um, lead to more health issues down the road. So I would say like very much both. Like these are not alternatives as far as the order. Um, I mean, honestly, whatever seemed more that we could get done more easily in the shorter term. Um, I would say right now it seems like there's more momentum behind 
Medicare for all. And so if we can go ahead and get that through, great, let's do that. Yeah, because otherwise you still have the handcuffs. You can't leave your job. And if you do, you're screwed. Right. Yeah, it's it's a super challenging problem, not in terms of what's obvious, but in terms of getting the political umph behind it, so to speak. How do we fund a universal basic income? There's been a lot of different theories on how to do this. There's some presidential candidates running on this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I mean, I come at it, again, very much from a progressive lens that I think that what's I find helpful um, for myself and when talking to others is to say, like, let's take a step back when thinking about economics and say, because people say like, oh, it's too expensive. And that's like, sometimes you can't even get past that in the conversation around the policy. But taking a step back and thinking about how much wealth our country has, that's really what the question is. Like, do we have enough resources to end poverty? And the answer is yes, we easily have enough to do that. Not only do we produce twice as much food as we eat in this country, we have six vacant homes for every homeless person in this country. But our GDP... We have six vacant homes for every homeless person in this country? Yeah. And so those resources exist. So, So that's, I think, helpful to start with. As far as how do you work with our existing system to actually make that happen, I think that there's there's a couple of, of different ways that I like. The first is just working through our, our income tax code. One thing about UBI, a lot of the pushback that you'll get, particularly from the left, is why are we giving money to rich people? Because a true UBI is universal. Everyone's getting your truck every month. And uh, I think there's very good answers around that if, if you don't, if it's targeted, you're only giving money to some people, you run the risk of then it becoming stigmatized. It doesn't feel, it feels like either charity or just welfare, as opposed to just our just dividends that we're receiving because we, as a country, are creating so much wealth. But I think what you can do, uh, and which makes a lot of sense, is that when you're talking about financing, if you are adjusting our income tax, such that once you get above a certain income, you're effectively just taxing that money away. So if you're not earning as much, you're coming out ahead, you're getting more from the UBI. If you're earning more, you're paying more into it. And so if you adjust our income tax that way, and if you add some additional tax brackets on the top, so that we go back more in line to the way we were taxing people pre-Reagan, you basically lower the cost of the program from something like $4 trillion to something like a trillion dollars. So that gets you most of the way there on its own. Um, as far as the rest of the costs, I think there's a couple ways of doing it. I really like the idea of a financial transaction tax. So small tax applied whenever uh, stocks or, or, or dividends are being traded. Uh, a carbon tax. God, Wall Street, Wall Street would hate that. They turn oh, yeah. by the second. Oh, totally. They're, they're just leeches on the economy. I mean, so, yeah, so much of the financial industry now is just, it's just rent-seeking behavior. It's not adding any value. And so figuring out ways to, to both cut down on that and also to get some. But you, you just basically violated the, you just basically pushed away the entire financial industry and all Republicans because you talked about raising taxes slightly even. I mean, I think that there's, and that's, I think, an important point, which is because UBI can look very different depending on, on how, on how you pay for it and who gets it and how it's given. You do have these different versions that some on the right may like and some on the left may like. For me, it, it's very important that this be something that's that's not leaving uh, people on the lower end of the economic spectrum worse off. And so, yes, that does involve raising taxes. And so, if that means that Republicans, at, at least the current Republican Party, is not going to get behind it, then I think that's just a question of, of fighting for longer term, building that building the coalition that that will support it. But then that can be supplemented by something like a carbon tax, uh, something like a wealth tax as well, uh, like Elizabeth Warren has floated. And that, that basically gets you the rest of the way. Okay. So you wouldn't necessarily propose cutting back on existing welfare programs and using that to fund it? I think that there's, well, two things. One, I think it's absolutely right that the way our social programs work today can and should be improved, um, particularly making them less paternalistic and so giving people more agency through them. Um, I think that it is not only very hard, but really impossible to know in advance how, what aspect of those the UBI will sufficiently replace and what it won't, because there are, I mean, there are so many programs and some of them are very, very targeted towards specific issues that people are dealing with. And so uh, what I would like to see is to enact UBI that doesn't rely on cutting those programs for funding. And then once that's in place, to actually really launch a, a thorough uh, review and, and research process to understand 
okay, what's actually necessary and what and what isn't working um, in the safety net and use that at that point to be able to, to reassess um, how to do it. I think because, I mean, we're doing a lot of pilots, we're getting more and more understanding and evidence around the benefits of EBI. We won't actually know exactly how it all plays out until we have rolled it out. And so I think that tearing down too much of our existing system prior to that um, is best avoided until we can actually really understand what, what is this world we're living in at that point. The danger with that approach is that at least with the U.S. government, it kind of continuously grows a bit like a cancer and that it never gets smaller. It only ever gets bigger. And how do you handle something like that? If you add, but then have to delete later, you're going to be deleting jobs, deleting people's way of life, so to speak. I mean, honestly, at least for the past few decades, it hasn't been true of, of safety net programs. Most of the direction has been in the direction of cuts. I mean, you had under Clinton welfare reform, which cut back on a lot of stuff. And they have been just like chipping away at, at things in the years and decades since then. So I, I think that when you're talking about... Uh, more universal programs and, and more, um, uh, and I would say more direct cash-based programs, there is more evidence that those are more politically popular and, and resistant. Um, so you haven't seen that happen to Social Security. You haven't seen that happen to the earned income tax credit. But as far as the other programs that are part of the safety net today, it, it hasn't appeared, at least in recent times, that there, there isn't the ability to, to cut them back uh, down the road, uh, particularly if, if they don't seem like they're, they're doing a whole lot. What's the best way to do pilots in terms of how we can effectively do this and see, is this something plausible? Yeah, talk riff about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a couple of important things to consider with pilots. One is collecting the data um, that helps us better understand impact. And so I think there's definitely a, a role for more of that, um, particularly because, as I mentioned earlier, Poverty and, and financial instability is such an underlying factor in, in so many other areas. And so better understanding if you give people a basic income or something like a basic income, what does that mean? Not just for their economic well-being, but what does that mean for their health? What does that mean for the likelihood that they're going to uh, enter the criminal justice system down the road? What does it mean for their education attainment? What does that mean for their entrepreneurial pursuits? Those are all potential areas where potentially there could be big, big differences with the UBI. And if we can use pilots to be able to better understand, okay, what's actually going to happen here? I think that's going to be really valuable data to have. I think another, uh, and this is very much looking at it with my political lens, but there is such a knee-jerk reaction in the population at large that the idea of giving people something, particularly cash without strings attached, just feels wrong and like, Things are going to go terrible. And so part of, part of actually what I think is going to be important from pilots is the stories and be able to say like, look, here's actually what happens. You have this low income person who's like been scraping together a couple of jobs. When they get $500 a month or when they get $1,000 a month, they're actually like able to go and either get more education or like figure out what sort of job is actually going to be right and provide fully provide for them in a way that they can't right now because they just don't have either the economic or mental like available resources to do that. And so I think that if you can, uh, if you can lift up more examples to that, then that helps you get past the knee jerk pushback, which will be important. I think uh, one thing that I hopefully will be able to do at some point, not just in future, but is expensive is the idea of saturation pilots. And that's where, so the, the pilots that are happening now are randomized pilots. So basically, you're taking some some area, whether it's a city or a state, and you're saying, okay, we're going to pick 100 or 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 people scattered amongst this population, and we're going to give them a basic income for some number of years. And so, and then you see what happens. That tells you something, but it doesn't tell you everything because we, we know from other types of programs um, and from pilots abroad, that there's a very different impact when everyone is getting a basic income as opposed to just one person or a small number of, of uh, dis uh, disparate people amongst some population. And so if we can actually do pilots where we're having an entire community receive a basic income, that is going to be able to tell us a lot more 
about what would ultimately happen if we were to be rolling this out to everyone in the country. I completely agree, but I want to play devil's advocate. People win the lottery and manage to lose all of it and go back to their general level of happiness not long after, quite frequently. And a lot of it has to do with the concept or how people think about money. I I would guess or I would propose that a lot of these changes might take longer than a single generation to propagate forward. So the reason why the rich stay rich and the poor stay poor, in addition to everything that's infrastructurally built in, is the concept they have around money in terms of scarcity and abundance. And I think you would probably have to change the way people relate to that before you change the behavior significantly. I mean, I think that it's it's definitely true that, yeah, just the cash is not, that's not going to suddenly erase all these differences and put everyone on, the, on actually the same playing field. And that there are aspects of, of how you perceive the world, who your community is, that have major, major repercussions. I think that's that's all the more reason for figuring out a way to do these saturation experiments. Because you gave the example of a lottery, a huge aspect of that is if someone wins the lottery, first, it's public, like generally people know. And so suddenly, they have a ton of money, and everyone in a network does not. And so you end up in this, I mean, honestly, pretty fucked up dynamic, where like, you suddenly are like, you're not no longer like a part of the community in the way you were before. And so of course, that's going to cause all sorts of negative effects, because you basically it's like putting this distance between you and, and those in your network. And then what, yeah, whatever sort of relationships you end up with, where people expect you to like, buy everything or whatever it is, I think it, it makes perfect sense that, that you would see some some pretty odd and negative outcomes from that. If you have a situation where everyone won the lottery, and, and obviously it wouldn't be that much money, but if suddenly everyone's in the same boat where you're all more financially secure, I think that looks very, very different than than when you just have that single case. And so that, that I, again, we're not going to be able to have a deep understanding of that until we can actually try it somewhere. But I think that potentially in that situation, things could change a lot more quickly than if you're talking about something at the individual level. Who's the furthest along when it comes to these thoughts in terms of countries, locations, etc.? It's hard to say. Yeah. One interesting thing about UBI is that there's some degree of movement in just about every part of the world, but people are approaching it in somewhat different ways. So as far as where there's relatively recently been significant movement, obviously Finland with their their pilot program that they did back in 2017-18, but then they elected a more conservative government who decided not to extend the pilot. So now it's unclear what will happen from there. Canada, uh, they had Ontario was, was doing a pilot. But again, like Finland, they ended up electing a more conservative government that ended up canceling it. But as a result of that, their choice to cancel it actually got people much more engaged around the issue than I think they were before. And now there's a lot more popular demand to reenact or, or to create something like this, uh, not just in Ontario, but, but in various places across Canada. And there are people at the federal government level there that are talking seriously about it. India, there's, uh, it, it's actually a result of a pilot program that they did to provide financial support for rural farmers. That was very, very successful. And suddenly after that, people are like, huh, maybe the idea of everyone just getting money is, makes a lot of sense. And so there's a state there called Sikkim, which the government there has said they are going to roll out a, a UBI. They haven't figured out exactly what that looks like yet, but they're aiming in the next couple of years to, to make that happen. You have some innovative programs happening in South Korea. You have serious conversations uh, in the UK, Scotland in particular has been pushing hard for this. And then, I mean, a lot of a lot of stuff around it has happened in the US. And, and as we talked about, there's not a whole lot to happen at the federal level for us at this point. But it's not crazy to think that some state or other would not enact a full UBI, but but do something maybe like what Alaska does, where, where they create a big wealth fund that pays everyone an annual dividend or something like that. So I have no idea who, who will be first. But I think the fact it's happening in so many places is is a really positive things because it ends up being uh, reinforcing each other as as we see progress there. I know you've argued that we need it regardless of the effects of automation and robotics. Where do you see us headed in that direction in terms of job growth, job loss, etc.? Yeah, I'll be honest. I so when I started looking at UBI, I as with many people was very much thinking about the the automation framing and the idea that in whether it's in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, most jobs will end up being replaced. And we're gonna, we may be in a society where there, like, there isn't enough 
jobs, at least in the current understanding of them, uh, for most of the population. I've, I think I've backed off from that to some degree. I still think, and I would say like anyone who's been getting attention should agree that the impact of technology is going to massively disrupt, uh, has already disrupted and will continue to massively disrupt the, the way that jobs work. Whether or not we can come up with creative new types of employment for people, maybe. I think there's a lot of, potentially a lot of interesting things in the experience economy that, that people could come up with where while you could have a, a robot or computer program taking on any particular goal you wanted to achieve, just the act of, of being a person and, and being involved in providing experiences could potentially be seen as valuable. But I think, again, things are being and will continue to be massively disruptive. And so the way I like to look at it in that context is UBI gives people resilience. It's having that unconditional income floor means that you are just much, much, much better able to handle any curveballs that get thrown your way. And I think there's going to be so many curveballs that are coming up that that's why a UBI will be... It, it. I think there's a good reason to think it won't be sufficient to handle everything coming, but it will be necessary if we actually want to have uh, a population at large that's, that's able to deal with this transition. When you say necessary, do you mean revolution if we don't have it otherwise? I mean... <sighs> I, I have no idea what that looks like, whether it, I mean, maybe a revolution, maybe it means, yeah, I don't even know. But I, I think it's, it would be with, without some proactive steps, I think we're talking about some massive, massive unrest. I would totally agree. I want to play devil's advocate a little bit on the UBI. Yeah. Let's say we give people more money. What stops businesses from just charging more? So that all depends on whether we have a functioning market. Because if we do, and we have, and we can rely on supply and demand, that's not likely to happen. Because basically, you have competition amongst businesses, and that will keep prices basically like near the level of what it costs to produce the good or service. If we don't, and we have either monopolies or collusion between companies, then that's a possibility. And so I think that's another area where, along with things like universal healthcare and dealing with climate issues, we actually need to make sure that we're, we're moving uh, or basically retooting our, our antitrust laws in this country such that when you, when you do have these monopolies, when you do have companies that are price setting, when you do have companies that are price setting, you have a way to be able to, to, to have the government come in and say like, actually, no, like we, this needs to be a competitive market and taking action to address that. And so I think that that's, that is going to be an important thing to be looking at it as we talk about this because I think something where you can see a functioning market right now is around food. Like if everyone's getting an extra thousand dollars a month, if McDonald's tries to double their prices, Burger King can say like, well, we're only going to raise our prices by 50%. And then the taco place around the corner is like, oh, we're going to only raise our, our prices by 25%. And then basically that competition brings it back down to more or less where it was before. But areas like the medical field, the housing industry, I think those are ones where it's going to require thinking critically about what the dynamics will be and making sure that we're prepared to be able to step in, we, we being the government, if there are cases where uh, where companies are abusing them. Yeah, the last thing we want is all the money just to go into real estate, which funnels it even even right. more tightly. So let's let's take this similar question from a different lens. How do we think about immigration and how do countries think about immigration if they start to have UBI and other countries don't? So, I mean, that's definitely a common reaction and concern is, oh, are suddenly like people are just going to flood here? The evidence around what causes people to try to immigrate suggests that whatever sort of benefit programs you have in a country don't have that much impact. It's typically as people fleeing something, that's what causes people to come. And then the prospect of, of being able to get a good job and, and build a good life for yourself. But it, it doesn't seem like that there's, uh, from the studies that have been done, that there's a whole lot of evidence that providing people with like a substantial safety net does a whole lot of anything. As far as, I mean, I think that there's, there's already, uh, questions that need to be figured out around like, yeah, what is, what is our process here? What is our process around things like asylum, things like refugees, things like H1B? Uh, workers coming in. And I think something, figuring out something that is welcoming but sustainable is important. But I think expecting UBI to suddenly make that look very different, I don't think that's probably going to be the case. I think the challenge will look a lot like it does today as, as far as figuring out what's the right thing to do there. Maybe I feel like that shifts the equation a bit, though. It's like when you only have so much space, you only have so much in terms of 
incentivization. Are you going to go to country A or country B, which is roughly equivalent, but gives you 12 grand a year? I think if that were the, the calculus being used by people, that would make sense. But as I understand it, it's more like shit, like local gangs and cartels are like destroying my life. I got to get out of here. Like, where can I go? And so for, for asylum, not so much for legal immigration, though. Well, for legal immigration, I mean, if we're talking about like H-1Bs, like those, like those are people coming in with jobs. And so maybe that's a factor. But I mean, those are people. And this, this isn't yeah. just for the U.S. This is just in yeah. general. Like, let's say Norway enacts in, in one. Let's say the country surrounded by lots of other countries enacts one. Yeah, I know. I know right now immigrants, at least in Europe, they go to countries that have good health care, yeah. countries that have st- strong social safety nets. They're going to Switzerland. They're not necessarily going to the Balkans. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, how much of it is a safety net versus how much is that there's the prospect for being able to find a good job and like build a good life for yourself. But if you don't need, if you don't need the job and the job is just icing on the cake, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I'm very, I'm very, very much in line with UBI and thinking we need that, but we gotta, we gotta sort out some of those theoretical problems. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, it's, it's a question worth investigating more as far as like, what is, uh, what are the motivations going to be and, and how, where people would choose to go. But I, I mean, I would say if we can like actually get ourselves to having a strong functioning immigration system, having more demand to come to a country isn't a bad thing. Uh, I mean, that means you're doing well. And so it's just a question of then, okay, how do we handle it in such a way that, uh, for people trying to come here, we're compassionate, but also mindful as to, what they're going to be doing and so on. And so I, I think that there's, there's definitely questions to be had there. But I, I, my firm belief is that having saying we shouldn't have better systems to avoid attracting immigrants here is the wrong way of looking at it. We should have a good immigration system and build its best systems as, as possible. Definitely agree. So you, you co-founded uh, a good or a for good startup share progress that helps other startups and businesses do great things in the world. Tell me a little bit more about that and how you think about the role of positive impact business going forward. Sure. So yeah, Share Progress, I, I founded a company about, let's see, six and a half, coming up on seven years ago now. And the company has, has done a couple different things. Our core, the core thing that we do is, is we actually provide a software platform to advocacy organizations. Those people who are doing grassroots advocacy, getting people to engage in, in some sort of ask, whether that's through petitions, whether it's through calling campaigns, whether it's through events uh, to show support. And uh, basically, they're tools that allow their members to to turn into really ambassadors for a program and recruit people they know to get involved as well. And so it's it's something where as, as their members are, are taking action, they can be reaching out to their friends and the tools allow the organization to be able to track that and also to actually be able to do controlled A-B testing around what sort of messages uh, their their supporters are sending and, and what's most effective at, at bringing new people in, into the organization. Beyond that, we've offered various consulting services, uh, helping similar, those types of organizations uh, with anything from web design development to analytics, being able to, to track their metrics and, and do testing to general strategy consulting. What do you think about grassroots movements and the decentralization that we've seen in terms of blockchain and companies or organizations trying to be more user built and based? I mean, I think there's there's a ton of potential there. Um, I think it it does tend to be very, I, I think it matters a lot on the context. I think there's cases where a really grassroots distributed approach really makes the most sense. I think there's cases where a top down approach makes the most sense. And there's cases where it's it's some balance between the two. Um, but I think there is, uh, if, if you have a model where um, people, allowing people and encouraging people to really feel empowered in their own agency to, to be getting involved um, is, is a possibility um, that can really uh, translate into, into much more impact. Um, because uh, when people get into that mind state, um, they're much, they're willing to put in a lot more time and energy, um, and potentially to, to be able to, to amplify what you're doing many fold over as compared to what it would be if it was, yeah, just one person or, or set of people at the top making all those decisions. 
Is that the future as we start to automate more and more jobs away? I think it's part of the future. I mean, I think that it is. I, I very much believe in, in most cases of some sort of hybrid approach because I do, I do think, I mean, there's limitations to that. There's, there's cases where, um, whether it's the existing structure that you're working with, whether it's, uh, the type of, of people that, that you have there and, and what their, uh, background, knowledge or skills are that going full distributed may not get you where you want to go. You may not have enough coherence across the people involved, but uh, but I think that it is. I think certainly traditionally there's been much more of the, the top down approach on things um, because we haven't had a lot of the tools to be able to to do these more distributed approaches. And so I think that there's that there's a ton of opportunity to engage more in that, and a lot of stuff we're still figuring out there. So yeah, I certainly would expect and hope that to be a big part of it. What technology or trend are you most excited about, and why? Um, that's a good question. I would say this is a little bit meta, but I would say people pay more attention to process. I think that traditionally it's been more the attitude is like, oh, like this is the way we do things and like we'll figure some stuff out through this, but like generally this is how we approach doing new things or working on things. And I think bringing more of both a critical and innovative lens to saying like, let's actually think about how we run businesses or organizations, how we actually set up the things that we interact with in our day-to-day lives. I think that 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 sort of, those sorts of questions, that sort of exploration has the potential to to really change the game. And and I think it often gets overlooked because it is one step removed from the actual outcomes that that people tend to pay attention to and, uh, and, and think about. But it can have such a massive difference as far as uh, how quickly you can do things, how whether or not you're getting to the best or near best answers. And so I think that innovations around process that we're, we've, I think we've only touched the tip of the iceberg, but I think more people engaging on that. I think that there's honestly some really exciting potential there. Do you have anything personally that you use for process in terms of making you perform at your best? I mean, I think... There isn't one thing I would say. Some of the practices I try to use is is figuring out what whatever I'm doing, um, how to how to do a good balance or alternate between kind of focused tunnel vision, just getting things done, versus step back, reassessing the landscape, deciding whether or not the approach that I or whatever group of people are pursuing is still the right one. Because I think oftentimes people end up in in one of those two camps and just stay there. And I think that doing both is is actually uh, important to to be most effective. How do we inject that experimentation into government? What I've heard mostly is that government could learn a thing or two from startups in terms of experimentation, testing, killing, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think that there's, uh, it is, I, I think there's huge potential in that overlap. And there's also so much we have to figure out. Because so I, I actually was having a really interesting conversation with someone the other day around design thinking. So going going through a process of a design lab or whatnot of trying to answer some some big question, or as the case often is with startups, designing some product. And we now have these these really innovative, effective techniques that have been developed within uh, within institutions that that work on this. And so. How does that then translate? Could you apply that to public policy and saying, okay, we want to come up with a policy for radically decreasing homelessness in San Francisco or in California or in the US? Could we use design thinking? And the person pointed out that they had actually had some experience and said, look, there's a lot of good concepts here. But if you try to apply it directly, design thinking has been crafted towards product design. And public policy isn't a product that you're not just trying to serve a very specific market often, you're trying to serve the population at large. And so there's aspects of that that have huge potential. But if you try to apply it wholesale, it doesn't actually get you very far. And so I think that that's that's an area that is fascinating and and deserves a lot of attention is saying, okay, we we have this thing that works really well here. We definitely, there's some principles about it that are we know are great. How does that actually then translate into this other world? And I think that's where, uh, that's where the challenge is. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I, I see so much potential for being able to, to do things in a much more 
efficient and smart way if, if we can figure those things out. 30 years from now, what does the U.S. look like in terms of the mixture of capitalism and socialism? <laughs> what does it look like or what do I think it should look like? <laughs> what, what does it look like? I know what yeah. you think it should look like. I, I mean, I, I consider myself generally an optimist. So I, I'm going to choose to believe that we haven't had a complete collapse of, of the systems around us uh, at that point. I think it is. I mean, if you're talking about the balance as compared to today, I, I think it's it's more socialistic than today for the simple reason that, again, I think this is it's worth helpful to, to take a step back and think about not not just not think about this in terms of ideology, but think about it pragmatically and say that, look, markets are very, very effective for allocating scarce goods and resources. Where social systems generally are not as efficient, but are good if you want to be more universal in, in what you're doing. Because, I mean, markets work on scarcity. That, that's core to it. So any area where we can reach a point through innovation that we no longer have scarcity in, in the way that we used to, I think that's a system where then we should talk about, okay, does it make sense to adopt a more socialistic or uh, centrally planned way of handling this, as opposed to a market-driven solution, which might have been much more effective in the past, but it's not anymore. And so I do think that with, with advances in tech, I, I hope that we're going to see more areas where, where scarcity starts to disappear. And so in those areas, uh, looking at, at more socialized systems. How will we know when scarcity has disappeared? Because everything's a blurry line and you never see it because you're stuck in the trees. You can't see the forest. I, I think this is why you can't really have an algorithm that answers all this for you. No, I mean, I think that that's, uh, it's going to require, I, I think these are complex problems. I think these are, these are things where there, there really isn't any way a priori to know exactly what the right answer is. It's something where we want to try, we want to try things, see how it goes, and then adjust, try something else and keep doing that until hopefully we can figure out systems that are getting us exactly where we want to be. And if that doesn't work, I got a magic eight ball. One last question okay. before we jump to the lightning round. You, you're a very optimistic person. You've literally been smiling the entire interview. <laughs> and I'm curious, what, what is it about you that makes you so optimistic and happy? And what can you share with the audience? Gee, that's a tough one to answer. I think that the thing that just first comes to mind is I, well, I, I enjoy problem solving. And so when I see something not working the way I think it ought to be working, my reaction is, okay, how, what, what would it take? What can I figure out that could make this better? As opposed to saying, well, that sucks. And so I think that that, that makes the, the bad stuff easier to deal with. I like it. Find a, find a way to look at it in a positive way. What was it like working with Obama? What was the most interesting or unexpected thing? Well, just to clarify, I wasn't, I wasn't working with in the, him in the administration. Yeah. Um, I, one thing that surprised me, honestly, is when, when I was moving out to DC, I had in my head, like, I'll be working with a bunch of cutthroat political people who are not, like, don't have a better vision of the world. They're just in it to, like, d get, get ahead. And the people I worked with there, and I think part of this was because these were nearly all of them were people coming off of the Obama campaign, um, many of whom were new to politics. But they, they really shared a, a more idealistic view of like where, what our systems could be and were just like generally nice, super pleasant people. And so, yeah, it was, I, I really enjoyed my time in DC. It was, we were, we were doing a lot of innovative work. Obviously things in the 2010 elections didn't go we, the way we wanted them to, but it felt like we were, it was with good people doing like pushing the bars as far as innovative ways of engaging in politics. What do you think about the recent crop of presidential candidates that are going to be running in the next election? I mean, I think it's great. We have so many. Obviously, there's some logistical challenges that comes with that. But uh, I think I think we got some really good people in the field. I think that I really like that people seem to feel like they, they now have permission to be bolder in, in the ideas that they're embracing and talking about, which certainly was was not generally true other, other than uh, certain exceptions in the 2016 lessons and before. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I really have no idea where things are going to go there, but I feel pretty good about, about a lot of the folks involved. So I'm going to twist your words and get your feedback on that. Donald Trump broke democracy to help build it better. Is that something you see possibly happening? Not that that was intentional, but that right. that's the end result. I, I definitely don't think that was his goal there. Um, oh, no, I, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. To show off the toupee. Yeah. 
No, I mean, I, I think that there is a lot of truth to that. I think there's there's a term I've adopted, which is from Naomi Klein, uh, which is shock doctrine, which is she she wrote a book about this referring to 9-11 and basically how in this moment of crisis, the Bush administration used that shock and disruption to push people into war with uh, with Iraq. But I think when when you have those moments when things get blown up, that is a chance to change and change can be bad or it can be good. And so I do think that, uh, yeah, this really is the 2016 elections and the continued Trump presidency have really created this moment where we can have serious conversations about how things might look very different than they do today. And so I, I do think that that's a good thing and, and that, that there's a lot of potential good that can come out of that. And let's say we got a universal basic income system functioning. You get your paycheck in the mail. What do you do in the next day? What does your life look like? I think I definitely celebrate for like at least a few days. But as far as beyond that, I don't know. I mean, I think it's as, as we talked about, it ties into so many other areas. And so if we've also gotten single payer healthcare, we've also done our antitrust reform. If we've also figured out how we're going to deal with climate change, then yeah, that's a lot. Know, that's a lot. That, of it's a lot. Um, if not, I think it's there's continue to work. But but if we've done that, then then yeah, maybe I'll go and, and work on my game design projects. Fighting the good fight, I like it with a smile too. I got one last question before you tell people where to find you. I want one thing from you. It can be a quote, a call to action, anything. If you could leave people with one thing, what would it be and why? Yeah, I mean, I would say. Don't let the status quo stand in your way of imagining the world you want to build. Because I think that that's, that's far, far too common. Um, and we need to actually be fighting for what we want. I agree. I like it. I think it's beautiful. Jim, where can people find you? So you can find, the best place to find me is just on Twitter, uh, dr underscore pew, P-U-G-H. And you can find Universal Income Project at universalincome.org. Very cool. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for tuning me. in, guys. And if he doesn't pull it off, Jim is going to send everybody free money. So you don't have to worry about anything. This has been the most profitable podcast in your history. Thanks for coming on, Jim. Great to be here. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. If you do, share it around with a friend. It's the biggest, most important thing you can do for us because we're trying to reach more people and impact more change. We don't get a universal basic income unless we have a lot of people pushing for it. And we don't make big changes unless a lot of people push for it. So help us push. Disruptors.fm. Share it around. Thanks. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.